Good morning. My name is Cindy, and I serve on the worship team here at FBC. Today we'll be reading from the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Right, unless you want to stand, I guess that's your call. Let's pray. Ask God for his help as we jump into his word this morning. God, we thank you for the love you have shown us in Jesus Christ. We pray, God, as we think about your word, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the truth uh, of Jesus and the grace and redemption he has for each one of us. And give us, Lord, willingness to confess what we need to confess and to receive by faith that which you have given us in Jesus. It's in, in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, you know, one of the things we do as a church, uh, this church in particular, I'm sure other churches do it too, uh, but we sort of, um, on Sunday mornings anyway, during our teaching time, we, we work our way through books of the Bible. You know, as you might know right now, we're in the book of 1 Corinthians, and it's sort of our habit to work our way through those books. And one of the things that that provides is an opportunity to look at passages that you would not necessarily cross-stitch on a pillow and put on your couch. And uh, today's passage is one of those, as uh, Cindy read that, you might be wondering, what exactly are we going to be talking about uh, today? Well, we're going to talk about the Bible. So let's start this way. Think about this. What do you think, if you had to take an assessment in your own mind and sort of solve this question in your own mind. I want you to evaluate how you might answer this question. What does it mean for a church to be powerful? What is a powerful church? And when you think of a church that is powerful, what does that mean? And I, and I can give you a number of answers that might come to mind, but you'll reject it because you're a, a church kind of person. But a number of things that a lot of people would assume would indicate a church uh, is a powerful church. Number one might be the size of the church, the number of people who attend that uh, church. Might be one, well, that's a powerful church because there's a whole bunch of people there. You know, so, so that's one way we might uh, evaluate that. You might evaluate it by uh, the facility, a building. Um, of course, you can have a very large building with a very small number of people. That's an option. But that's one pe way people evaluate. This church is a powerful church because look at its property. Uh, is big. And of course, another way along those same lines is does the church have a lot of financial resources to provide to the community and provide uh, ministry programs? These are ways we value. This is what a powerful church does. But other things you might also consider, maybe a church is politically influential. That is, maybe in a local or regional context, a, a local body of believers perhaps maybe has some sway and influence in how things run down at City Hall or at uh, the county seat. Maybe that's what a powerful church is. Or maybe if it's a church that's particularly influential, maybe they have a voice into uh, the national political scene. Maybe uh, a pastor or a member of that staff is regularly interviewed uh, by news people. Maybe that's what a powerful church is, an influence uh, into uh, the political scene. Or perhaps it's social influence. Maybe a church is powerful if it can change things in a, a community where uh, you know, there's uh, poverty and crime and addiction. Maybe a church is powerful if it can wield change in those areas. The Bible today is going to help us understand uh, the opposite. I want to look at it, and then hopefully you can apply the truth. We're going to look at what a powerless church is, so that hopefully we can say, well, then what is a powerful church? It's the opposite of a powerless church. Because we want to be a church empowered by what God is doing, the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel. So we're going to look at what a powerless church is, and hopefully by the end of this, uh, we can think accurately and biblically about what a powerful church means. 
Because frankly, even though when uh, Cindy read the passage, we might think that this passage is about a guy who is committing a particularly heinous sin, it's actually not. The passage is about the church that he is a part of. And that's what the, the passage is about, a powerless church. There's a popular game out. Well, I don't know if it's still popular. Things come and go. It's called Among Us. It's a video game. It's a multiplayer game. I can tell by the expressions on your faces, and the expressions are breaking right along age lines. <laughs> right along. Uh, when I said Among Us, a number of you were like, oh, yeah, okay. And then others were like, what? And I'll let you decide which group did which expression, Okay. So let me explain to you what the game is for those of you who may have been confused by this. What it is, you log in to your device, uh, game console or maybe your phone or whatever it might be, and you log in and you play a character. And your character is on a spaceship. Stay with me. And this game is a multiplayer game. So you're playing with a bunch of other people. Maybe people you know, but most likely people you don't know. And it's a very, very simple game. You're a little character runs around the spaceship doing jobs. Okay? However, when you logged into the game, you discovered, are you a crew member or are you an imposter? Okay? So everybody's doing the same thing. And some people are doing tasks and some people are doing impostering. The imposter's job is to secretly kill everybody <laughs> without getting caught. And the, the job of the not imposters is to catch them. But here's what happens is every now and then the game stops and everybody comes together for like a group conversation. And everybody defends themselves and says, I'm not the imposter. I'm not it. And at the end of that conversation, there's a vote and we kick somebody out of the game. Now, they may not have been the imposter. So the imposter's job is to stay in the game and kill as many people as possible. Some of you had no idea we'd be having this conversation this morning. <laughs> Their job is to stay in the game and kill as many people as possible. Then the regular people, their job is to find the imposters and not die. So there's no solution to the game where everybody says, you know what? Why can't we just let the imposters hang out? Why is that a problem? Everybody dies. It's a negative impact. So the assumption is... The, the assumption is, if you're going to engage in this activity, there's going to be a sense of who is doing what. And that's what this passage is, is getting at. A church, a powerless church, is a church that celebrates accepting sin. A church that celebrates accepting sin. A church loses its power in the gospel when it thinks accepting sinful behavior reveals some form of higher understanding. Some form of higher intellect or biblical understanding accepts sin as not sin. Or a church loses its power when it decides that accepting sin as not sin is an appropriate application of grace. That's when a church loses its power. A powerless church celebrates accepting sin. Verse 1, chapter 5. It is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and that of a kind that, not, that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. He dis Paul describes the situation. A man has married his father's ex-wife. Likely a father was married, a father got divorced, or the father died, either way. And the son has married not his mother, but his father's ex-wife. Leviticus 18.7 makes this particular act in particularly sinful. A person should not do this. So a man has, uh, is either married to or cohabitating with, but certainly having sexual relationships with, relationship with a woman who was formerly married to his father. Now we have to understand also in the first century in the city of Corinth, this isn't a prudish city. This is a city that we would consider sexually lenient we would not find their sexual ethic culturally that strange to us in the culture we live in today. It's not as though this culture were, were a very sexually restrained culture. It isn't, or it wasn't. And what's happening is this person within the body of believers is doing something that the Bible says is wrong, and what's interesting even beyond that, it's something even the broadly already sexually lenient culture also says is wrong, and the church on the other hand is saying, we're so high-minded we can receive this as good. So that's the situation. The act of this man 
in the world around him would have been looked, at, looked on as, as improper. And of course, the Bible looks on it as improper. And so what you have here is a, a church not trying to appease the sensibilities of the culture. How do we know that? Because the culture, Paul says, doesn't accept this behavior. This is a church trying to influence a culture, perhaps even, to accepting something a sin they don't accept. Or something, accepting behavior that even they, they don't accept. The church has come to some kind of conclusion that they, by applying the truth of the Bible and the gospel, ought to be even more accepting of calling something that which is wrong and saying it isn't wrong. It's acceptable. And so we need to talk a little bit about sin. I'm going to turn over to Galatians chapter 5. It may be up on the screen. It may not be. If not, you have your own copy of Scripture. We're going to look at a relatively large section. Galatians 5, 16 through 26, one of my favorite sections of Scripture when thinking about what it looks like to think about sin and walking by the Spirit. And uh, it contrasts, especially for us as believers, how this looks. So this is Galatians 5, 16 through 26. Most of this is very familiar to you, but I'm going to read most of it. There is a fairly decent chance we'll be done by kickoff, so just sim calm, <laughs> calm down. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Stop there. He's saying there's two forces at work in the life of the believer, the life of the spirit and the life of the flesh. Now, don't think of spirit as immaterial and flesh as the stuff of your body. Certainly flesh includes our body, but he's talking about that part of us that still yearns toward that which is wrong. You can be a believer, have the Holy Spirit in you, because all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and still have a desire toward sinful behavior. Agreed? Okay, for those who answered, you're telling the truth, the rest of you are liars. <laughs> you can have the Holy Spirit. And what the Bible describes, that lenient, that desire to continue in sin, or to do sin, is the flesh. That's the pull of the flesh, the remaining sin with Genesis. That's normal. Until you're in heaven, that's the deal. And he's saying that in the life of the believer, we have these two things, and they're sort of operating in conflict. One part of us wants to do what is right, refrain from doing what is wrong, and another part of us wants to do which is wrong and avoid humbly serving others. And so he says, this is where we have to make a decision by the power of the Spirit how we're going to live our life. Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, the works of the flesh are obvious, they're evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I don't know what he left out. I don't, when he said things like these, like, what have you missed at this point? Listen. He's not playing. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that word do there is the ongoing continual doing. Those who participate in an ongoing basis, we might, might interpret it this way, or I would anyway. Those who do these things on an ongoing basis because they've decided they're not wrong, well, they're not going to heaven. Because a, a, a spirit-indwelt person may do these things, but they will know these are wrong. But a person who has decided these things which are wrong are sin, that's so contrary to the spirit. A person who is doing, living that way should not have any assurance that they are in the kingdom of God. Now, he applies the other side of the equation there. The, the fruit of the spirit is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So what he's describing about the life in Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit is a life of flesh versus spirit. This is the life, to be saved. To be saved is to press into 
walking by the Spirit, knowing full well there will be times where we walk in the flesh. But the idea of being a Christian is to press into walking by the Spirit. To be of the flesh is to either live as someone who isn't saved, and why would you want to do that? Or, as Paul says, in an extreme situation where somebody decides sin is actually good, maybe it means a person should not have assurance they have experienced salvation. The sin here is the clear difference is walking by the Spirit and walking by the flesh. We're not talking about sinless perfection here. James 3.2 says, all of us stumble in many ways. All of us, how many is that? All the people stumble. Oh, sometimes I do this one thing. No, Bible says you stumble in many ways. All of us stumble in many ways. So he's not talking about some uh, silly notion of never doing anything wrong. He's talking about, about a mind and a heart and a spirit that wants to press into walking by the spirit, even though we're going to experience that conflict on an ongoing basis. The hope of the gospel is grace applied to our sin and grace that allows us to walk away from sin. There is no grace offered for things that aren't wrong. So you cannot receive grace for doing something that's not wrong. The only way to experience the grace of God is to acknowledge something that is wrong and receive God's mercy and forgiveness for it. It is anti-gospel to call sin good. That's what's happening in the church of Corinth. How can you have the power of the gospel if you no longer need grace? But we want to say, well, it is gracious to say that a person is not wrong. That's not gracious. Any other context, we'd say that's ridiculous. If you go to the doctor and you're very ill, it is not gracious of the doctor to say, you're not sick. That is not grace. That's an idiot. That's malpractice. What we want from the doctor is for him to tell us what is necessary to cure the malady. And that's what grace does in the believer's life. But it doesn't call sin good. It says sin is bad, but God is gracious. And there is forgiveness and kindness to it. That is the hope of the gospel. It's not pretending sin is good. It's calling sin, sin, and saying there is grace enough for us. His grace is sufficient for us. So that's the situation in the city of Corinth is this man has his dad's wife and this church has decided for whatever reason, we're not exactly sure why, they have decided his behavior is acceptable. This isn't some silly notion of accept the, 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 the sinner and not the sin. They have decided what he's doing is okay. How can you have the power of the gospel if you're unwilling to say something is wrong? Because the only way to have forgiveness is if you have done something that violates God's holy standard. Okay, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and look at verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. You see where I got the illustration there, among you? I mean, it's right in the text. How could you not use that one? So these people are arrogant. Somehow they have decided because their higher level of thinking, their higher level of wisdom and sophistry and their, their intellect, they have arrived at this situation spiritually and, and intellectually that they have established a means by which immoral behavior can be viewed as moral behavior. And so they're arrogant. They're, they see themselves in a higher plane of spirituality than others because they have tried to conform their thinking into saying, this guy's behavior is okay. Their, their intellectualism has led to a ruined view of Christian liberty. Grace is not permission to sin. Grace is freedom from sin. Grace is not saying you can keep doing what you're doing and everything's okay. Grace saying you are okay, but I'm going to lead you away from that which robs you of life and vitality. In fact, let's look at it over at Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Another long section. Romans 5, 18, actually until Romans 6, 4. He's talking about Adam... Yeah, that Adam, the one at the beginning of your Bible. 
and Jesus. Therefore, verse 18 of Romans 5, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Saying, just like Adam's sin ruined everything, Christ's sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection provides the means for all people by faith to have life. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. What he is saying here is that being born of Adam, meaning if you are in the lineage of Adam and if you are alive, you're in the lineage of Adam, all people who have come from Adam are born as sinners and then quickly confirm their sinners by sinning. And so we have received an inheritance of death, destruction, and sin from Adam. And what he is saying is now we can have a lineage of righteousness, not from Adam, but from Jesus. By putting faith in Jesus, our lineage is one of righteousness, where just as we were credited sin from Adam and then confirmed it by sinning, now in Christ, when we trust him, we're credited with righteousness, So if we receive sin from Adam and sinned, what should we do if we receive righteousness from Christ? Be righteous. That's the argument. Why would you receive righteousness to keep on sinning? You already had that situation in Adam. Verse 20 of Romans 5. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what he's saying is no matter how much you sin, or Adam sin, or the world sins, Christ's righteousness as an act of grace is greater than that sin. That's, good, that's really good news for people like us. Well, now I'm not accusing you of anything, but I just, well, I've read my Bible. That's really good news for people who tend to, throughout their lives, do things they know are terrible, and and they want to know, am I okay with God? Do I have to live with shame, regret, and guilt? And the answer is no, because the grace of Christ through the cross is greater than any sin we could commit. It's greater than any sin we could, could commit. Now, the temptation would be, since... His grace is greater than any sin I can commit. Therefore, I can, well, keep on sinning. Right, well, that's why chapter 6, verse 1 comes in. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. I don't see the Apostle Paul saying, by no means. You know, very politely. This is a, an astounding, so if somebody came up to the fall, so I'm, I'm seeing how grace works and sin works, so, so I can keep sinning and I'm good. And uh, well, I don't know how to say this, but he would have smacked you upside the head. <laughs> He's like, smack, what's your problem? No, no, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now pay attention to this, because if you're in Christ, one of the things you're called to do is be baptized. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, were buried therefore with him, that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we might walk in newness of life? So he's connecting our baptism with our new life. He's saying you're baptized into Christ's death, so now sin and death no, no longer have any reign over us, right? That's awesome. If you want to keep on sinning in Christ, Your baptism should stop there. That's deadly. (laughs) Because look what he says. Because the baptism, you're buried into Christ, and then the coming out of the water symbolizes what? That resurrection into newness of life. And so he's saying, when you're coming out of the waters of baptism, you're symbolizing, I want to walk in a new life. If you wanted to get saved so you could keep on sinning, your baptism should be a one-step process, not a two-step process. Now, we can't get the insurance for that. (laughs) And we're not going to do that. But some of us look at that, 
that symbolism and, and we experience a sense of, and we ought to get a sense of the cleansing power of the good news of the gospel in us, and that is critically important, but we failed to remember coming out of the water also says, I'm on a new path now, and it's a path of righteousness. It's not a path of the same old, same old. Paul would, is suggesting in many ways that that baptism is saying, I have a new path of life by the Spirit, and we might suggest if you have no interest in walking a new path, don't get baptized. Because that says I want to be on a new path with Jesus and his people. It's because grace abounds that we can be saved. But God's abounding grace is not a pass to sin. In fact, grace does the opposite. It calls us to lead a life that follows after Jesus. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. A powerless church, though, doesn't celebrate grace. A powerless church says sin is okay and doesn't require grace. A powerless church decides, we don't have to apply grace to it because you're not doing anything wrong. And we've, we've gained nothing. There's no power to transform and become like Jesus when we stop saying, walking like Jesus looks like the fruit of the Spirit and walking by the flesh is deadly. We haven't gained anything. And it's powerless. Grace doesn't accept sin. Grace calls us to live like Jesus. A powerless church celebrates accepting sin. Now celebrating uh, sin leads to the other issue we're going to look at in the last couple of verses. A powerless church fails to embrace its redemptive purpose. That is to make each one of us more like Jesus working together as a body of believers to to make each other in the gospel more like Jesus. So if we're willing to say something that is sinful is not sin, we've abandoned one of our purposes, which is to help each other become more like Jesus. Now it's February, so most of you, after applying for a gym membership or getting a gym membership in January, are either just making a donation or uh, you've just gone ahead and, and canceled. Some of you are hanging in there, good for you. But if you're going to a gym, and maybe even if you get a personal trainer, you probably have done so because you have certain goals you want to accomplish in terms of your fitness, maybe your strength, maybe overcoming injury, or maybe you want to lose a few pounds, whatever it might be. So you're going to go to the gym, and so you're giving a couple of things to the gym. Number one, you're providing them with your financial resources, right? They don't do it for free, do they? I don't know if any of them do that, okay? So you've got to pay them. Not only that, but, you have to, but it takes time. You've got to uh, take two hours to get ready at home, put on the right outfit, make sure you look good. You can't go to the gym looking bad. I mean, then you've got to drive to the gym, and then you've got to get there, and all the machines are full, unless you go at midnight. You know, you get there, and all, all the machines are full. So now you've got to wander around, or you'll try a machine you've never tried before. So you're investing your money, and you're investing your time. So you're, you're giving your money, and you're giving your time, and after a couple of months, or maybe even you can give it a good run, give it six months, what if nothing's changed? What if the goals you wanted to accomplish aren't happening? What if the injury you were hoping to gain strength over is still nagging? What if you haven't lost the weight you were hoping uh, to lose? What if you're not having the cardio strength that you were hoping to have? What are you going to do? If you're going to this place to get in better shape and you're not seeing improvement or maybe worse yet, you're getting worse. You're going there and standing on a motionless treadmill and watching TV. <laughs> at some point, a wise person would say, you know what? I can do this at home for cheaper and for less time. The power of the gospel is supposed to make the church a place of transformation. When a church abandons that purpose of personal becoming more like Jesus-y kind of people, then the power of the gospel is lost in the church. A powerless church fails to embrace its redemptive purpose. That is, for the people of the church to become more like Jesus, personally transformed by the power of of the gospel. That's what he's calling for here in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 5. Though absent in the body, meaning he wasn't physically in Corinth, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So the Apostle Paul says, I'm going to behave as though I'm standing right there with you. And I'm pronouncing judgment on this Yahoo. 
Now, you need to understand, Matthew chapter 7, there's a verse that all of us, this is when we do cross-stitch cross on a pillow. Judge not, lest you be judged. Harumph. That's what you say at the end of that. And you say, well, yeah, how can Paul be judging if we're not supposed to judge? Two different kinds of judging. We have two different kinds of judging. The judging in Matthew 7 is saying, I'm going to stand here. You are going to stand here. I am going to judge between you and I who is awesomer. And I am. That's judging. When I, when I evaluate myself over and against others as a means of exalting myself, then that's judging that Jesus prohibits. That's where he says, uh, you know, you, you shouldn't want to pull the, the little sliver out of somebody's eye when you have the log hanging out of your eye. That's judging. Well, I'm, I'm the expert on all things morality, and so therefore I'm going to assess you even though I'm unwilling to acknowledge my own failure. That's one sort of judgment. The judgment Paul is doing here is a statement of fact. Here's the facts. This guy's behavior is a behavior the Bible describes as sin. That's what he said. I pronounce judgment. Uh, he has had sexual relationship or an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmom. Married or unmarried doesn't matter. That's a sin. He shouldn't do that. That's not assessing Paul better than or worse than. In fact, in other places, Paul says of himself, I am the worst of all sinners. He is, this is just a statement of fact. This man is doing something that is sinning, that is sinful. The Lord has a, an opinion on this man's behavior, and we can state that as a fact. And Paul states it openly, and he states it boldly. He says, sin is bad, and it should stop. Is that a controversial thing to say? I don't know. I'm thinking that that feels controversial, but it's not. Does everybody agree sin is bad? Are we? Okay. Do we also agree it should stop? Now, we struggle with this one because we know we're not stopping sinning. Okay, but just because we struggle with the flesh and the spirit doesn't mean we can't say what the Bible says. It should stop. And that's what Paul is saying. So the question is, if this man is sinning and his sin should stop, what's the mechanism that he should stop sinning? What's the means by which this guy will go from someone who is practicing sin to someone who has repented and turned from sin? Now, that, the fancy word we have for that move from one who is sinning to one who sins, does, isn't sinning, we call that Transformation, becoming more like Jesus. So what's the mechanism that God has put into place so a person can go from someone who does sin to someone who says, I don't want to sin that way anymore. And what's that mechanism? The body of believers. It's, it's the body of believers. And Paul is saying, you should do something to step in that this man would experience transformation. But the church has not called for his repentance. What have they said? He's good. We accept him. You can do that and, and, and you're not sinning. How can a church who is accepting of sin call a man to transformation? They can't. And Paul is saying, I want you to call one another to transformation. Verse four. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, he's saying, as though I, were, as though I was with you, with the power of the Lord Jesus. So the... We should, we should understand one of the first steps of transformation he, he describes here, and it's really, really easy. The church should assemble. The church should get together. There's other places the Bible says that. I think it's Hebrews, what, 10, 24? You know what? You should not neglect gathering yourselves together. Some are in the habit of, uh, some are in the habit of doing. Why is that? Because one of the ways in which we experience transformation of the gospel is to get together with other believers. And one of the ways we overcome personal sin is to get together with, with other uh, believers. So one of the things we have to do as a body of believers, we get together, we assemble together. And it's a, 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 one of the mechanisms of providing accountability in our own personal life. I don't know how many people have been out on a Friday night, certainly not me. On a Friday night, and you're going, you know, maybe I will, I don't know what you're your thing is. Maybe I'm gonna, and then you think, oh, wait, I'm gonna go to church tomorrow. I don't wanna drag myself into church with that in the back of my mind. Right? Well, I gotta go down, 
I got to go see those people. I want to be able to look them in the eye. And you say, well, well, that seems like a guilt-ridden. No, that's called accountability. And if you don't like people helping you be more like Jesus, I don't know why in the world you'd come to church. This is what, what Paul is calling for here, is a sense that we're going to draw each other to walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh, and that's, a, that's an act of, of grace. So one of, the, one of the mechanisms that God has provided for us to overcome sin is gathering together as, as a body of believers. How many of us, Friday night, Saturday, something has gone sideways on us, I'm trying to be polite, and then Sunday morning, never mind, I'm staying home. And, you know, that's, that's what we do. Now, one of the great things about living in a gospel community is we can drag ourselves in or having really blown it and experienced what, what grace is. Where we repent and experience the love of God and his people together. So first thing, get together. Verse five, what's the second thing? You are to deliver this man to Satan. Again, these are verses you are not going to find on pillows on people's couches. You're deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He's saying one of the ways we call ourselves to repentance is saying, you know what, if you think that's good, you're not of us. Now, we're not gonna do that if somebody parks a little funny in the parking lot. And usually there's a period of relational conversations that are occurring before all of a sudden somebody walks in and say, you know what, you can come, to, but you're not of us because that's not, that's not spirit-led kind of stuff. And that's what Paul is saying here. This, he's saying this church, instead of calling this man to account and saying your behavior is not Jesus-y to such a degree, why are you here? Why would you waste your time in church? I mean, this is the guy at the gym. He's not working out. He sets up a table and just spreads it with Chick-fil-A and just sits in the gym eating Chick-fil-A. And somebody's going, well, you can eat at the restaurant. What are you doing here? You're not doing anything here that makes sense. And that's, in a sense, what Paul is saying here. For his own benefit, if he's unwilling to acknowledge that his behavior is of the flesh and not by the spirit, then saying, we're spirit people. Why do you want to be here? One of the roles of the church is to Provide accountability to us that we're willing to, to acknowledge our own frailty and say, no, I need the accountability. I need the help. I need to be able to say no to sin and, and yes to humble service to others. When the church abandons this role, we lose our power of the gospel because that's where we can see lives transformed. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 15 to 25. I turn to these other passages because here in Corinthians, he's really consolidating the application of these other passages in Galatians and Romans. Romans chapter 7, 15 through 25, a very familiar passage. It speaks to the importance of the transforming power of the church in the gospel. Paul says this, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. How many, how many of us that describes our walk with Jesus? I call that Monday. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law, it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do as right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I, I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, his body, his flesh, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Verse 1 of chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The struggle with sin is not the same as the acceptance of sin. See, Paul just described the struggle with sin. Most of us read Romans chapter 7 and we say, I know what this guy is talking about. 
I know what it's like to live life and struggle with sin and want to have victory and to fail and then have a little victory and then to fail and then to read Romans 8.1, there's, no, there, there's no condemnation and experience that great sense of wreath. That's the struggle of living the Christian life and that's why we need each other. That's very different than what was going on in Corinth when they said, you're not struggling with sin, you're just not sinning. And that kind of a, a church, that kind of an attitude is powerless. Nobody can be transformed in that kind of place. The church, the body of believers, our, our friends within the body of believers, they, they help us in our struggle. They provide comfort and strength when we need comfort and strength. And they provide accountability when we need accountability. Sometimes we need exhortation. We need that, that good buddy to walk up and put his arm around us and say, you need to get it together. And then sometimes we need to, a good buddy to put his arm around us and say, don't worry about it, you got it. His grace is sufficient. And that's where the church, that's where transformation happens. And that's, a, that's the power of the gospel in the local body of believers. A powerless church celebrates accepting sin and fails to embrace its redemptive purpose. A couple of things I wanted to, you to think about. Still got three hours till kickoff. Four hours. We'll be done before then. If you were to stop being part of the local church, or if your involvement with the body of believers was limited, do you think it would have any impact on your spiritual life? For many of us, yeah, if we weren't a part of the body of believers, we don't know if we'd make it spiritually with the Lord or not. But many of us, our spiritual life is what it is. We come to church for other things. And if we were to stop going to church for a period of time, it wouldn't even phase us. If absence from the body of believers, a connection with those you care about in the body of believers has no impact on your spiritual life, something's missing in your connection with the body of believers. Because this is where we, with others, engage with the truth of the gospel and are transformed. That was the plan. The plan was always for us to get saved into a people that we might be transformed together, not get saved as an individual and check in with our people. And for many of us, a participation in what's going on in the local body of believers is a, a side dish. And unfortunately for those of us in that boat, the Bible doesn't provide a category for that. The primary place of transformation to become more like Jesus is our connection with our friends within the body of believers. So it might provide an opportunity for us, for us to assess what's going on in my life where where the, body of, the local body of believers has become such a small part of my spiritual journey. If that's the case, it might be an opportunity to think through that with the Lord. Another way of thinking through that. Is there anyone in your local body of believers that depends on you for their walk with the Lord? Same question, different implication. If you were to stop being connected with the local body of believers or your connection became limited, is there anyone in that local body of believers that their walk with the Lord might be impacted? And if the answer is no, then, then we're missing something. Because the Great Commission does not apply to some. Go and make disciples was a charge from our Savior to every individual who bears the Spirit of God. And if there isn't anyone within our own body of believers that is looking forward to the gifting God has given you as an individual to encourage them in their spiritual life, we might want to wonder, how am I interacting with the body of believers that I'm missing one of the primary reasons for being there? There should be, those of this is the body of believers, we're going to get to it in 1 Corinthians 12, but we're three years from that. We're intended by the, the, the Holy Spirit to be an interdependent body following Jesus. And if I'm not depending on anybody, or if nobody is depending on me, my connection to the body has, has missed its power. I might suggest, too, that it is in that, when I need others to become more like Jesus, and when others need me to become more like Jesus, I, I might suggest, this is just my personal opinion, that is the sweetest place 
in the body of believers. There's lots of good stuff about being a part of a body of believers. There's a sense of commonality. There's a sense of uh, mutual belief. There are people that we've shared a lot of memory with, both here in the church and in social settings. And, and there's a lot of really good things. But the, the really good stuff of the church, the stuff that you will carry to eternity, is the stuff where with another person you saw each other become more like Jesus. And if you're missing that in the body of believers, I'm just telling you, you're missing the good stuff. Okay, last one. I saved the best for last. All of us, now I don't know, uh, I don't know how to say this politely, all of us accept some sin is okay. Now, it may not be having an incestuous sexual relationship. I would certainly hope not. That seems sort of next level for this church in 1 Corinthians. But I think there should be an evaluation of what behaviors and attitudes that we accept. And we say, you know what? That, I mean, they're not great, but I mean, I'm not killing anybody. And there's a place for us to evaluate in our own hearts. What are those things that we are doing that we, we don't think are sin? I'm going to mention a couple in there. I'm going to really go hard at one, and then we'll be done. Good? You're all hoping I don't go after yours. <laughs> like, please don't go after mine. Anger? Selfish anger, I should say. If you really get angry of injustice in the lives of others, okay, good for you. But that's like 1% of your anger. Usually you're mad at the guy in front of you in the, in the intersection. Anger, uh, selfish anger. Selfishness is a sin. Did you know that? Selfishness is a sin. Some of you are like, where is that? Okay. Envy is a sin, wanting other people's stuff. Anybody want other people's stuff? Then why do they run commercials? Greed is a sin. It is a sin to think that your money will provide you what you need. That's called idolatry, where we worship money, where we think if I only had X amount of dollars, everything would be fine. That is what the Bible calls greed. And I think if I read right over in Galatians, it said people who continue in that don't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Was it something like that? Anyway. Pride is a sin. Pride is a Thinking that you are the one who has caused the benefit in your life is a sin. Many of us, and I'm grateful for this, have experienced some level of success in our lives. We live in the United States, and so many of us have those great opportunities afforded to us, and in many of us have taken great advantage of those opportunities. It is a sin to think you caused that. God did. If he didn't want you to be successful, you would have failed. And it's a pride, it, right? We do agree on this. Do I have to argue this? That's a whole other sermon. <laughs> To think I am the cause of my success is pride, and pride is a? Got it. Okay, we're good. Okay, let's go hard on one. I don't know if this is going to apply to anybody, but if it applies to one person, I will have done my job. 25% of adults in the United States will bet on the Super Bowl today. One quarter. $23 billion. Some of you have DraftKings out right now. I'm not kidding. You're back there. You got a parlay. You're working. This is a 35% massive uptick in sports betting since last Super Bowl. Next level betting. Most of this betting is done online. Is betting a sin? I looked in the Bible. I even used, a, I even used Google. I couldn't find a... Um, a place where betting is wrong. Although, I mean, the soldiers betting over Jesus' clothes on the cross. That seems wrong. Okay, but what's wrong? Here we, here we go. How, how can I say it this way? Betting is not wrong if you can do it without being greedy. Just like drinking is not wrong if you can do it without getting drunk. See what I did there? Betting is wrong, not wrong if you can do it without being greedy. I would suggest it is easier to drink without getting drunk than it is to bet without being greedy. And I, you're arguing because you've got DraftKings out. Stop it. So this is for that one guy. I don't know who it is. It's typically men. So if you think that's rude, it is. Whatever. 
If you are betting any amount of money and you have not met your family needs, you are sinning. If you are betting any amount of money and you have not properly cared for you and your family's future, you are sinning. If you are betting and you have not generously participated financially in the gospel ministry of your local church, you are sinning. If you need to win in order to provide for your family or your future or your generosity, you are sinning. And if one guy hears this, and Monday he doesn't have to take the walk of shame to his wife and say they're going to put the mortgage on the credit card because of this message, then that's a win for me. Because this is happening. 25% of the people in this country are going to bet $23 billion. Many of, people, many of us are betting money we don't have. It's a great game. Have fun. Watch my homes and my auto. I don't watch a lot of football, so I don't know who Taylor Swift is, but she sounds fast. <laughs> so. We can have some fun. If you can bet without being greedy, bet. I bet you can't. That was pretty good, that was on the fly. Oh, we got the pride thing. <laughs> and he said, well, that's kind of rude. Well, that's kind of rude. It is, it is not rude. It is the grace of God for one person to go to another person. This is best served when it's two people who love one another, and they say, you know what? You're doing this, and, you, and that's not very Jesus-y. And I want to help you to not do that anymore. That's a powerful church. That's a life-transforming, grace-filled church. I mean, do you want to be a part of a church like that? I do. And the question is, how do you want to participate in that with others? You're going to have to build some relationships where you really trust and care for each other. Powerful church, a powerless church celebrates accepting sin and fails to embrace its redemptive purpose. Jesus, we thank you for the grace you have given us in, in, in your act to save us from our sin on the cross. We thank you, God, that it is because your grace we have the freedom to talk about our sin. It's because we know we're okay in you, we can talk about those things in our lives that, that aren't okay. But God, I pray you would help us not to be those who accept sin in our life as not sin. We want to be a place where lives are transformed by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sometimes that means we have to have conversations that are a challenge. And we need to admit those things in our life that, that are of the flesh and not of the spirit. God, I pray for those in this room today as we're having this conversation, those sins that have clung onto them are in the forefront of their minds. God, I would pray that you would give them, by the spirit and, and even close friendships, the ability to walk away from those things. God, I also pray that you would overwhelm us with the capacity of your grace, that your grace is sufficient and there is no condemnation. Don't allow the enemy to fill us with shame when we are filled with hope. And I pray for those who are here today who don't know you, God, that today you might fill them with the spirit that they would trust you for salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why don't you stand up as we close with the song?